Verse 4, the first one was like a lion with eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was lifted up from the ground. It was made to stand on two feet like a human being, and human mind was given to it, or a human heart was given to it. This represents Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, all scholars agree that this is Nebuchadnezzar, because all scholars agree that the animals match up with the metals. And in chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel specifically says, the gold head is you, Nebuchadnezzar II. And all throughout the Bible, and I can give you multiple passages, Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 1 through 11, Jeremiah 49, verse 19, Lamentations 4, chapter 4, verse 19. These are all in my notes. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is constantly described as an eagle and a lion. And over and over and over again, we see him described as an eagle and a lion. And in more ways than any other nation, and the Bible is described and connected to an eagle and a lion. Not only that, the winged lion was an image that the Babylonians themselves used in their artwork to represent themselves over and over and over again. In the same way that we as Americans use the bald eagle. And they used many animals, but the winged lion popped up multiple times. This is clearly Nebuchadnezzar. So he is mutated. And he is not what he's supposed to be because he's not following God. Now the wings being ripped off probably represents his madness when he goes mad. And then he stood up on two hind legs like a man. Now that's important because this probably represents his restoration. The fact that it specifically says he stood up like a human means that he's moving out of the beastly category into the human category. And this is represented by his conversion. And specifically, it says that he was given a new heart. Some translations say mind, because in the ancient world, the heart and the mind were the same. Even today, we talk about the mind being the place where we think and we make decisions, but we also talk about the heart as where our desires are, and we follow our desires, which actually has to do with our will, which is in our mind, and our decision-making, which is in our mind. And we know that our heart really isn't making any decisions. It doesn't really have any desires because it's just this thing pumping. So the mind and the heart were used interchangeably in the ancient world in order for it. And the ancient, ancient world was more often used called heart because they didn't really have this concept that the brain did anything. They didn't have, they didn't do like autopsies like we do today and study it with probes. So they didn't have that idea. It wasn't until the Greeks came along and they began to emphasize the mind that the mind started replacing the heart when they talked about will and desire decision making. And you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God says, love the Lord your God with your heart. But then when you get to the second testament, Jesus quoting that passage and says, love the Lord your God with your mind. And he's using more of the Greek way of thinking. So heart and mind are interchangeable. And so he was given a new heart and a new mind, and we talked about that. That always, in the Bible, represents conversion. And we see this when Moses in Deuteronomy says, your hearts need to be circumcised. Jeremiah says, your hearts need to be circumcised. And that circumcision is displayed by the Holy Spirit coming in one day and writing the law in our hearts and transforming it. And then Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This idea is that this represents Nebuchadnezzar no longer being a beast. No longer being a beast. Because he's chosen to act like the image of God once again.
Verse 5. Then a second beast appeared like a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and there were three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Get up and devour much flesh. Now the bear, in the Roman Empire view, the bear is interpreted as the Medo-Persian Empire. They see this bear as the Medo-Persian Empire because they see this as the second kingdom. Now remember, the big, big, big difference between the Roman view and the Greek view is the Roman view does not see the Median Empire as a separate, distinct empire. And therefore, they have to make the Roman Empire the last empire in order to get four empires. Where in the Greek view, they see the Median and the Persian empires, two distinct empires, therefore ends on the Greeks. One of the things I've mentioned is, one of the things that makes this argument strong for the Greek view is the fact that if the Roman Empire is truly seen as one of these beasts in chapter 2 and 7, where it does not clearly state that this is the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is never mentioned in chapter 8, it's never mentioned in chapter 9, and it's not mentioned in 11 and 12. If the Roman Empire was in view in all these visions, why is it only maybe hinted at briefly and these cryptic metaphorical images of metals and beasts in chapter 2 and 7, but then we're specifically told what empires are involved in 8, 9, and 11, and 12, the Roman Empire is never mentioned. And it doesn't make sense that God would be like, Roman Empire is really important, but then leave it out in this vision here, leave it out in the next one, then it's really important, then leave it out, leave it out. And, and yet... The Greeks keep always being the ending empire. And there's other ones. In chapter 8, the Greek is the ending empire. And in chapter 9, the Greeks are the ending empire. And in chapters 11 and 12, the Greeks are the ending empire. And so this all points to the fact that this is, should be seen as the Greek view. And I gave other reasons when we did chapter 2, so I'm not going to go through all those again. But that's one that I wanted to highlight again as we start diving into these visions and we go to 8, 9, 11, and 12, and we don't really see the Roman Empire here. So if you take the Roman view, the Romans see the two, the, the one side of the bear is lifted up higher than the other. Now, the idea here is that's like a hunchback mutil, uh, mutation kind of a thing. Not like it just happens to be like reclining on one side and eating bonbons and watching Netflix. The idea is that it's actually mutated in a hunchback sense. And the, Ro the Roman view says, well, this is the Medo-Persian Empire, because the Persians were more dominant than the Meridian Empire. It makes sense that one side is lifted up higher and more prominent. Then we're told that it had three ribs in its mouth. They would say this represents the three empires that the Persians had to defeat. When the Assyrians came, they had to defeat everyone, because there had never been an empire yet. When the Babylonians came, they didn't have to defeat as many nations, but they did have to defeat more because there were people that the Assyrians hadn't defeated, and there were some alliances the Assyrians made that Babylon wasn't interested in alliances, they were interested in conquering. When the Persians came along, there were only three nations they had to defeat. They had to defeat um, Lydia and what's Asia Minor up here, and then they had to defeat Egypt and Babylon. So Babylon's the Tigris Euphrates River and then down to Egypt. Once they defeated those three nations, everything fell. And the Persian empires had dominated everything. So they would take those three ribs 
to represent the three nations that they had to defeat. The problem with this view is first, these nations are never mentioned in the Bible in connection with each other. It's very interesting that when you take the Roman view, it seems like you have to like put a lot of assumptions in. Well, this must be... Now, they're, they're not a total assumption. We know, historically speaking, outside the Bible, these are actually the three empires they had to defeat. But they don't, they're never mentioned in the Bible. So that doesn't make sense because a lot of things keep tying back to what the Bible's already mentioned. They're not mentioned in connection to each other. Second, Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, said the second kingdom would be inferior to Nebuchadnezzar the second. But that is not true the Persian Empire. This is the other one that I think is a very powerful argument for the Greek view. Because in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, he made it very clear that the second empire was going to be inferior to the Babylonian Empire and all the empires that came after that. It doesn't make sense because the Persian Empire was actually very much superior to the Empire of Babylon and in some ways superior to even the Greek Empire, depending on how you look at it. So it doesn't make sense that the bear is the Persian, or the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Greek view says that this is the Median Empire. In connection to things that we've already talked about in chapter 2. Because the bear is not as swift as the lion. The Medes didn't really expand and conquer. A lot of their expansion came with their alliance with Nebuchadnezzar. And once Nebuchadnezzar died, the Medians just kind of slowly conquered a few other nations here and there. But there wasn't this rapid growth like we see with the swiftness of a winged lion, with, with the swiftness of a winged leopard. You don't see that swiftness. And a bear moves way slower. But a bear is still seen as a very powerful, fierce animal. That makes sense when you fit it in with that. Likewise, many times the lion and the bear are mentioned together to describe the Persian Empire that God was bringing them. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, Proverbs 28, Lamentations... Well, I'll give you the verses too. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34, Proverbs 28, verse 15, Lamentations 3, 10, and Amos 5, 19. In a similar way, the Babylonians and the Medes together dominated the surrounding nations with fear. So there are multiple times that the lion and the bear are constantly mentioned together in pairs. But the bear is not mentioned in pair with anything else. And the bear or the the Median Empire came into power with their alliance with the Babylonians. When the Persians came along, yes, the Medes and the Persians were allied together, but only because Cyrus's mother came from the Medes. And they weren't really allied as equal partners. They were just there. The Medes just kind of existed. Plus, the Cyrus was described as having multiple swift victories. What are the two sides of the bear then? The two sides would then represent the greater, more dominant side of the Median Empire. When Nebuchadnezzar died, the Median Empire became very dominant in the world. And then when the Persians came over and took over, the Medians basically became insignificant. So the two sides don't represent the two sides like one empire and another empire, but the two sides represent two different stages in the Median Empire. The two different stages. That makes more sense. It does not make sense to see an animal as representing two nations when every other animal represents one nation. It makes more sense that the two sides represent two stages in that nation. 
And what are the three ribs then? When the Median Empire took over, there were four nations that were part of the Median Empire. And the four nations that were part of the Median Empire were Medians, Arat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. These three nations were located in the upper, like close to the Black Sea. And so these three nations were part of the Median Empire. They kind of had a little bit of their own independence, but they still answered to the Median Empire, and they still acknowledged the Median king as their lord, but they seemed to have a little bit more separation than anybody else did. And so that makes more sense that these are the three ribs in its mouth. It is a part of the bear, but the fact that it's in the mouth means that there's a little bit of an independence here. A lot of times people argue, well, it has to be the Roman view because you have no explanation for the three ribs. Well, that's not true. There's things that actually match this very well. Likewise, several times the Bible says that Yahweh had stirred up the Medians as the next empire after Babylon. So Isaiah chapters 13, verse 17, Isaiah 21, verse 2, and Jeremiah 51, 27 through 29. There are multiple times where God actually speaks of the Median Empire as a separate, distinct empire from the Babylonians and from the Persians, and that he was going to stir them up to attack the Israelites in no reference to the Persians. And that right there also strengthens the idea that the Median Empire is seen by God as a separate, distinct empire. Verse 6. After these things, as I was watching, another beast like a leopard appeared with four bird-like wings on its back. This beast had four heads and ruling authority was given to it. Now we know that the leopard is one of the fastest animals in the world. And then you give it four wings and that's really fast. That's really fast. And so this is a swift animal that has authority to go out and destroy the world. So the Roman view interprets this leopard as the Greek empire. And they believe that the speed of the leopard fits well with Alexander III. Because Alexander III did conquer the world incredibly swift. Therefore, the four heads and the four wings would represent the four generals. Now we kind of already talked about this, but I'll review it. When Alexander III died, 323 B.C., his empire was too weak. He had, he had conquered the world swiftly and in an amazing way, but he himself had not lived long enough to really establish the strength and the stability of the empire to survive his death. He died very young and very unexpectedly. And so his empire fell to the warring generals. And there were four generals that came out more victorious than anybody else, and they divided the empire up. And these were Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And you can see this here. This is the Greek empire that Alexander the Great conquers. But here's how it's divided up among the four people. So you see the four colors here. And it was divided up in this kind of a way. And so they would say that these four heads and the four wings represent the four generals. Represent the four generals. The problem with this is the foreheads and the four wings are two distinct things. And every single time we see a part of an animal, like the wings of the lion, they're distinct things. When we see the two sides of the bear and the ribs in its mouth, it's distinct things. 
So it doesn't make sense that the four heads and the four wings, which are completely different things, would represent the exact same thing. Especially when heads are naturally associated with leaders and kings. So that would fit the four generals. But wings are not associated with power and authority. Wings are represented with the four corners of the earth, the parts that you actually rule. And so that doesn't seem to fit except to make the heads and the wings the same thing. Likewise, the whole animal is portrayed as strength. The whole animal is portrayed as strength. Where the Greek empire was strong under Alexander III, but it became very weak under the, three, the four generals after him. And so you see two divisions here. That is clearly displayed when we get to the chapter 8 and we're shown the goat, which represents Greece. And everybody agrees that that represents Greece. And there's two stages in the goat of strength and then of weakness. And so it makes more sense that we should see strength and weakness stages in the Greek empire with the leopard like we see with the iron. Remember, if the iron represents the Greek empire, we have the iron, which is strength, and then the clay, which is weakness. And that's displayed there, so we should see this here, but we don't. The whole thing, leopard, wings, and heads, communicates strength all the way from the beginning to the end of the empire, yet that was not true of the Greeks. So that's a problem. So the Greek empire view interprets the leopard as the Persian empire. And this makes sense because the Persian Empire was incredibly stealthy in the way that it defeated the world. And the four wings represent the four corners of the earth. The Persian Empire had conquered more territory than anybody before them. And though the empires before them were dominant and powerful, they only conquered a few sections. The Babylonians only had this small area here. The Medes only had this for it here. And the Babylonians and the Medes and the Assyrians never described themselves as controlling all four corners of the earth. Yet Cyrus II constantly referred to himself as the emperor who controlled all four parts of the world and controlled all four different directions. The four heads seem to represent the four dominant emperors. And that fits too because everybody agrees that heads need to represent leaders because that makes sense. That's logical in visions. So now, even though there were more than four emperors that ruled from Cyrus all the way to the end of the Persian Empire before it fell under um, Alexander III, there's only four that were incredibly powerful, expanded the empire, and are actually mentioned in the Bible. So even though there are multiple emperors throughout the Persian Empire, the only four actually expanded the empire which fits with the leopard moving swiftly. And only four of them are actually mentioned in the Bible, which once again highlights the Bible here. So that would be Cyrus II, then his son Cambius II, and then there was an imposter who claimed to be a descendant of Cyrus that kind of came in, Smerdes, but he's insignificant because he was an imposter and he ruled for less than a year before he was sacked. Then the next one is Darius I, and then Xerxes I. So Darius I and Xerxes I are both mentioned in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So it makes sense that these would be the four heads because they were considered the most powerful, empire-building, wealthiest emperors of the entire Persian Empire. And so that fits. It also fits with Daniel 2, 3 through 2, 39, which says that it will rule the whole world 
which the empires did. Tracking. This is a little easier than chapter 2, and I kind of laid everything out in chapter 2, so hopefully this is a review. Once again, there's nothing wrong with having to listen to this again or read it again, because I can't tell you how many times over the years I've reread commentaries and things over and over and over again just to like figure out what everybody's talking about. Nothing wrong with that. That's why I tell my students, reading something again is not a mark of stupidity. It's a mark of understanding something.